Welcome to Outspoken Voices, a podcast by and for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer parents, people with LGBTQ parents, and everyone else who is part of our family journey. I'm your host, Tatiana Quiroga. I'm the Southern Regional Manager for Family Equality Council. Today, we'll be talking about what to consider before tying the knot and starting a family. We have two guests with us, Darla Kashian, a financial advisor. She is a formal Family Equality Council board member. However, she continues to be heavily involved in sponsors and presents at the Family Weekend of the Midwest. She resides in Minnesota with her family. Thank you so much, Darla, for being here. Thank you. Then we have Elizabeth Swartz. She is an attorney, and she's on the Board of Advisors for Family Equality Council. She recently published her book, Before I Do, A Legal Guide to Marriage, Gay, and Otherwise. She is currently being featured on Family Equality Council's book nook, Author in the Spotlight. She resides in Miami, Florida with her wife and her fur babies. Thank you so much for the two of you for being here and sharing some information with us. Darla, would you like to kick us off and share some of your experiences and financial points that people should consider before getting married and or starting a family? Absolutely. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, I think that a lot of what we're going to talk about today is really important. Uh, There are really important things to consider before you marry. But also, I just want to remind people that if you're already married, these are things you can go back and hopefully um, address uh, uh, after the fact. So uh, what I talk about today, I don't want it to be seen as, oh, heck, we didn't do that, and now it can't be done. So um, first off, I just want to say that hardly anyone puts the kind of planning in place uh, before marriage other than LGBTQ people. So uh, it's worth reminding that, that due to legal constraints that we've had for so long, that our, our our ability to plan is probably uh, most impressive. So, you know, think about that as you're going into this and think about our friends who married in their 20s, um, because these are things that people would never have considered. But I think as we're looking forward, um, they're definitely worth taking into account. So there, there are a couple of things that I think are really important to uh, talk about in advance of legally marrying. The first thing is having a clear understanding of the financial situation of both partners. This is often something people don't talk about before they marry, and then once they're married can create a lot of conflict. And there are ways to do it in a way that's friendly and non-judgmental. And, you know, maybe someday we'll have a conversation about that. So I think that's really important to understand going going into a legal marriage because Depending on where you live, you may be assuming the liabilities or the debts of the person that you're marrying. The second thing that I think is really important is to understand what your financial goals are jointly as a couple, as a family. Again, most people don't really put that um, uh, put those ideas on paper prior to marriage, but I think it's really worthwhile to to be mindful about it. The third thing, and I'm I'm guessing Liz will talk about this is that there may be a role for a prenuptial agreement. And for those of you who are married already, you can actually put that into place after marriage. Um, But it's worthwhile, again, depending on where you live, to think about how you might want to protect assets in the event that the the relationship may, may fall on hard times and demise. And then the final thing from a financial standpoint that I would, um, really encourage people to talk with a tax planner about 
is what is that marriage penalty going to look like from a uh, from a tax planning standpoint? There are lots of benefits that we receive, um, ranging from retirement plan benefits and Social Security uh, benefits that are um, that are definitely accorded to people who are married. There's also a tax penalty uh, for uh, high earner couples that marry, and so I wouldn't want that to. It, you know, from my perspective, it doesn't matter, but I wouldn't, and I wouldn't want that to drive a, a marriage decision, but it's worthwhile to understand it going into marriage so that you can plan accordingly. Those are the things I would take into account. Wonderful. Now, Darla, can you touch upon that tax penalty a little bit more? Because uh, you're absolutely right. We, we lots of times focus on the benefits, but we rarely hear about a tax penalty. And is that something that is federal, or does it depend on each state? Uh, it's a it's a federal tax penalty, and again, I I, I can't give tax advice. Right. Um, so I would so I would urge you to um, urge listeners to consult with their tax preparer. But essentially, and it's ironic actually, because if you think about the way public policy is designed to encourage marriage, the the tax penalty for married couples just doesn't make much sense to me at all. But married couples have to combine their earnings in order to determine their gross income. And then the tax, even if you if even if you file married filing separately, your combined income determines what your what your tax filing is. And the, and, and what that can create create some incremental tax uh, 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 tax bracket creeps. So I would definitely look into that. Um, the other thing to consider is that you know if you're a family of four unmarried, and each one of you are taking a deduction for one of the kids, again, you might want to do some pre-planning to at least understand what's going to happen once you're married and you're taking the deduction for both kids. Um, and, and the other piece of it is if one of you is claiming single parent head of household. You know, so so there are a lot of little nuances that can that come into play once you're legally married and filing taxes as a married couple that at the very least you want to understand uh, going into the process. Right. In your opinion, do you feel that families should look for someone to do their taxes who is knowledgeable with LGBTQ families? You know, I think some of that becomes, um, you know, because I, I, I would say that marriage is marriage, so you want somebody who's experienced doing taxes for married people. Um, mm -hmm. I, of course, would feel more comfortable with someone who understands that there, you know, that pre-marriage that there might have been some accommodations that were made from a planning standpoint. So, for, mm -hmm. for example, I have a lot of clients who um, didn't never expected that they would be able to collect spousal Social Security. And so as a result, they've carried a much higher um, expectation of life insurance in the event of one of the parents passing away and being able to, from a from a tax efficient standpoint, to be able to take care of children and and the uh, uh, surviving spouse. So you want somebody who's going to understand that mm -hmm. up until now, we might have done some more creative things to plan. And now we're, we have some of those things are in place, but that we have to think differently going forward um, of what we've done and what we need to do going forward. So I, I you know, I think it. I think it does make sense to find someone who has that expertise. Wonderful. And since you know we're on the topic of planning, 
could you give us some examples, as you mentioned before, like how 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 do you kind of broach this topic of, you know, your finances when you're thinking about getting married? Like, how do you even start that conversation with somebody if you have some suggestions? I do, um, you know, and uh, I had the uh, just absolute privilege of being able to present a couples and money uh, workshop at Families in the Midwest a few years ago. And I think we had a really good time. And what I wanted the message to be is that you can actually have a good time talking with your spouse about money. Um, but I think it needs to feel like you have the same outcome and the same goals. And so I always say, you know, sit down, have a conversation that where the kids are taken care of, where you have an expansive time. This is not the conversation that should take place when everyone's running out of the house in the morning and you realize nobody's paid the water bill because you didn't know whose job it was. Right. <laughs> I'm not saying that's never happened in our house. It, it, it may have. So, so you know, you want to think about, you know, and, and this is sort of that premarital um, conversation of, you know, dealing with that. What kind of debt do we have? How are we going to talk about it? Can we decide together what we're going to do? Um, you know, every, in my professional experience, every single couple, the two individuals have totally different views on managing money. So one's a saver, the other's a spender. One thinks we need a budget, the other thinks you're the problem. So again, I want people to think outcome focused rather than um, that sort of opportunity that could be blaming or shaming your your spouse, um, because I think that that gets you to an understanding together of what you're trying to accomplish. Um, I, you know, I think it's worthwhile to talk about this more than once. And so, you know, to try to have, you know, the, the some of the other people in this field say, well, you should have a once a month money meeting. I'm like, oof, that would take our once a month date off the table because it would be talking about <laughs> money. So I think if you do it in the spring and the fall, spring tax time, fall, back to school, um, you know, make sure everybody's on track with what the, again, what the goals and objectives are. Because I think if the conversation focuses on that, and I think it's important to, you know, engage some professional help if you can't do it on your own, whether it's a financial advisor um, slash social worker or whether it's a therapist. So, you know, I think that, um, having a third party to help facilitate that conversation can be extremely helpful. Right. And I think things and should be in writing. Oh, Pardon? great point. Great yeah. point about having it in writing. Yep. And they, you know, everyone always says, Oh my gosh, you know, we should have this financial plan. And, and again, people in my business, you know, we're, we're rife with, you know, hundred page financial plans, but I believe for a family financial plan can be a one page executive summary. It should be short. It should be comprehensible. It should be achievable. You should have some short-range goals, and you should have some medium-range goals and some long-range goals. It doesn't have to have, you know, 45 different multicolored charts because you're never going to revisit that on uh, in that semi-annual meeting. So if you have that one-page summary that says, you know, we want to take a vacation once a year and we want to retire when we're 65 or 55 or tomorrow, um, we we want to help pay for the kids to go to college. Here, here's how we're going to get to all those things, right? I think that that helps to create a mindfulness of of financial management and spending that's really more focused on your joint goals together rather than, 
you know, who bought an extra pair of shoes on Tuesday. So um, it sounds a little, um, you know, hocus pocusy, but I think it, you know, I think if you can, I, I think if couples can really, you know, accept us, each other in their best space and then work on those goals together, I think it leads to a lot less fighting. Right. Which is, you know, finance is kind of up there on lots of times. The reason for the fight. Number so, one or number two. Yeah. <laughs> so the even better reason to kind of be um, proactive Absolutely. in that way. Yep. Nice. Well, I have this long you, list if anyone wants it. You know, if you go out for a drink, only have one. You should be well rested. You should have enough time. Uh, you want to keep it short and succinct because we all know when we have there's a reason why therapy appointments are 50 minutes and not an hour and 50 minutes. <laughs> um, you know, one person talks at a time. We're, you know, we're Jewish. It's kind of hard to do that in our house. But, um, and, you know, and listen and have a positive attitude about it, understanding that we're all working towards the same goal. Wonderful, Darla. Thank you so much. You definitely gave us a lot to think about. In a good way. Well, <laughs> well then with that, um, Elizabeth, would you like to share some of your experiences and some legal considerations that people should have before getting married or starting a family? For sure. Thank you so much. Uh, and thanks, Darla, for that uh, great information that you provided. And, and I feel like um, you, you were a great sort of uh, accidental messenger for like so much in, in, in Before I Do in, in this book <laughs> that we just published um, because uh, there, there's so much in there that is, that's exactly what you're talking about. So, so a couple things just to – it's always nice when a lawyer gets to go second because then, you know, you get like rebuttal time, right? So, uh, <laughs> so a couple of things. First of all, um, your, your, your excellent point about like first thing is run the numbers. Talk to, a, talk to a tax preparer because there could be a marriage penalty. There could also be a marriage bonus depending on your um, assets, your income. So um, uh, in, in, in my little section about what marriage means in the book on page 39, I've got like a little chart that kind of walks you through the, the, the numbers uh, and, and uh, w- what it could look like. And, you know, a whole section um, actually written by a tax preparer that's got a lot of that, uh, of that detail in there. Um, and, and, and I'm so with you, uh, Darla, when you say that, that while this is sort of couched as before I do, you know, all of this information, much of this information uh, is really uh, of use at any point in a relationship, you know, before, during, or after. Uh, and, uh, and certainly there's a lot that one can do uh, to, to affect change uh, in, in what, when you're already married. Uh, not, you mentioned a postnuptial agreement. Uh, which many states allow uh, to, to, to modify the default in the law, certainly estate planning. Uh, you know, we've got lots of folks uh, probably listening to this podcast who, who may be concerned that uh, upon getting married that their, their spouse will get all of their assets at death and, and then the child would get it at the death of the spouse, and for, for some people that doesn't work, right? For some people you might, be, you might have a child from a prior relationship and want to make sure that that child is provided for, right? So there's lots of ways in which that default in the law in your state would, be, uh, would not be appropriate for your family. So, 
you know, what what I set out to do in in, in before I do um, is to to kind of raise these questions, to raise these issues, so that you can have articulated for you some of the some of the questions to ask when you go see the lawyer, when you go see the financial advisor, when you go see the tax preparer, uh, so that you can customize a plan for your family and in your state. Um, you also mentioned, Darla, great great questions to be talking to one another about uh, when when you're when you're taking the leap and. And again, I, I think that at any point in a relationship, I mean, even if you're not getting married but you're just shacking up, I think it's really important to be clear. You mentioned uh, the, the question about so how much debt do we have and what do we what do we have to do, uh, you know, to, to kind of make these payments in a way that's uh, comfortable for the family. So, so I'll tell you, as I've been traveling around the country with this book, the, the, everybody's favorite section is is this section on, on uh, in, in starting out. Um, and it's on page 22 of the book. It's about 15, well, it's 15 questions that I suggest that couples discuss before taking the marital plunge. But as, since I'm a lawyer, of course, it's like 15 questions with a lot of sub-questions, so it's a lot of questions. But these are all, um, you know, questions that I suggest that folks discuss, uh, uh, you know, to, to sort of make the marriage process a little bit less daunting because you're just, you're, you're, you're kind of clearing away the underbrush is how I think about it. You're making sure that you have sort of a basic knowledge, uh, you know, of the other one's life situation before digging in deeper. And these are all questions from really like from my conference room, like things that folks didn't know about each other um, and including, uh, you know, what kind of debt do you have, how much and to whom, you know, what are your assets, uh, have you ever been sued, do you have judgments against you, um, how have your prior relationships ended? Uh, I think it's important. Ooh, that's to know. good. Right, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, are you current on your tax returns and payments? Do you anticipate growing old in the town where we live now, or do you hope to end up in a different setting? Um, you know, is there anybody else you'd want to provide for at your death? You know, really basic, what's your annual income? You know, do you anticipate stopping employment or asking the other spouse to do so as a consequence of marriage or having children? Uh, do you want children? How, if so, how do you imagine us having children? Are you open to adoption or assisted reproduction? Do you believe in monogamy? You know, these are all like kind of. It seems like it's basic, like you know, but but I think it's important to really like specifically ask these questions. You know, what is your annual income? Right, like that's the kind of thing you might think you would know, but for lots of people who are not, you know, who are like 1099 employees, you could imagine that you know their income fluctuates, and it's important to know these things. I've had, unfortunately. Quite a few divorces that I've done uh, over people who just like did not agree how they wanted to have children. Oh, I never was okay with adoption. You, know, you should have talked about that. So um, I feel super uh, strongly about asking these questions uh, at the beginning, and and then again and again and again to discuss that, as I call them, the three big D's: death, disability, and divorce. And. Uh, I don't know. Were there other questions? I forget. You just said, what are my thoughts? Uh, <laughs> 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 I can keep going on and on. The I, I, well, actually, yeah. yeah, Liz, if you could get into kind of explaining the differences um, between, you know, the, the different kinds of adoptions when it comes to second-parent adoption, step-parent adoption, sure. um, and even talk about, you know, um, birth certificates. I know that, yeah. you know, it really has an assumption that, you know, with marriage equality, 
everything's fine and everything's good and we don't have right. to worry about anything. Um, so if you can kind of touch into that just because we can't hear it sure. enough and understanding, yes. too, that everything is depending on state, yes. but kind of giving an overall would be great. Thanks. Happy to do that. Um, and I, I forget if you said in my in my intro, uh, so uh, for folks who, who, who don't know, um, so I'm an attorney in South Florida, and I worked on uh, the litigation overturning our adoption ban and our marriage ban. We had it, gay people couldn't adopt in Florida until 2010, and, and then uh, we couldn't marry in Florida until January 2015. And so, so, so definitely sort of being on, on, on the front lines of those battles, I've, I've heard a lot of folks uh, with their kind of misimpressions as to what those victories meant you know, um, and so, so uh, in fact, that's really one of the things that kind of gave birth to the book is just to, to teach people what rights marriage brings and it doesn't bring. And one of the biggest misconceptions that I've found is that people seem to think, as you say, Tati, that that if there that if you're married, that you that that is the end all be all with respect to getting your parental rights. So there, there are a couple of things that are implicated in that, right? First of all, um, there's this assumption that people have that if you marry somebody, that you have parental rights to that child that is the legal child of your spouse just by virtue of the marriage. So now, now that's not true. You need to do a step-parent adoption. If you marry someone and you want to establish parental rights to that child that was born before the marriage, um, you have got to do a step-parent adoption. Now, if you marry somebody and then you have a, con a child in the context of that marriage, um, so that's our, that's our most recent litigation that we, that we just won with the amazing uh, National Center for Lesbian Rights, nclrights.org, um, a 40-year-old uh, organization that is based in D.C. and San Francisco that's, um, you know, like ACLU, like Lambda Legal, um, that does uh, uh, impact litigation on behalf of the LGBTQ community. So um, we sued the state of Florida with, uh, with the National Center for Lesbian Rights for them to issue fair birth certificates. So that birth certificates are issued um, featuring the names of, of both uh, parents when the child is born in the context of a marriage. We won that lawsuit, uh, and those similar lawsuits are going on all throughout uh, the, this, the country, although they're you know, getting resolved quickly, um, because of course a marriage is a marriage is a marriage, as Darla said, um, and so you've got to be able to uh, to have a child who was born into the context of marriage have both of both of the spouses, both of the parents listed on the birth certificate. However, as you point out, Tati, it's very important uh, still to button up those parental rights with a judgment, and here's why. That, re that presumption that allows uh, both parents to be listed on the birth certificate, it's called a, the marital presumption in the law. And the marital presumption is like, you know, like, like if you were born to your, let's say, mom and dad, and let's say, you know, your dad wasn't really your biological dad, but it was the milkman, you know, because of the fact that your mom was married to your dad, even though he wasn't the biological dad, in my example, he gets listed on the birth certificate. So we believe that we should, be, we should benefit from that same marital presumption. However, not all judges in all states uh, believe that that marital presumption applies to same-sex couples. There have been some really awful cases recently in um, New York and in Arizona and in Tennessee 
and, and of course, in the Trumpocalypse, we understand that judges are going to be ever more emboldened to, to rule uh, uh, adversely to our families. Um, but in those cases, uh, they were all cases where uh, judges said to a same-sex female couple, that's lovely that you're both on the birth certificate, but that's not enough, and you need to have an adoption. Um, an adoption is, is given, as we say in the law, full faith and credit anywhere in the country so that you needn't, and in the world, so that you needn't rely on just a birth certificate. We, we say um, that a birth certificate is, is presumptive, not conclusive proof of parental rights. So there's a presumption that that, that other parent who's listed is, is the parent, but, but that presumption can be rebutted. It's, it's not conclusive proof. So it's, it, so it's strongly recommended uh, to follow up uh, the, that, that birth certificate, which is a great victory, and we're so thrilled that we're, we're getting them all across the country. Again, a birth certificate that's issued to um, a child that's born of a married, <coughs> excuse me, same-sex couple. But it's also uh, really important to, to also just button up those parental rights with a, a we, we call it a confirmatory adoption. It's a step-parent adoption. It's not a big deal. It's fun. You go to court, take a picture with the judge. <laughs> it's a cute little family memory. And so, so that's really important. Now, quickly before I, I wrap up, I just want to also say that if you are not married, you choose not to marry, I've got a huge section in the book about reasons why you might want to not marry. Um, we could talk about the adoption tax credit and how in some ways it could be more tax advantageous to adopt um, uh, uh, your, your child if you're not married because you get the adoption tax credit. You don't get it if, if you're illegally married. So, so couples that are not married can do a, can do a second parent adoption. So you mentioned uh, sort of, ask, sort of uh, articulate the differences between the two types of adoption. So a second parent adoption is when the parents are not married to each other. Uh, a step parent adoption is when they are married. And second parent adoptions are, they tend to maybe have one, one or two more steps to them. Uh, you might have to do a home study, uh, but, but uh, they're just as legal. They're just, they're the, the, the same result. Uh, is that both par you know, parents are legal legal parents of the child. Um, I do a lot of them uh, still, again, couples who are not married, maybe couples who, who have broken up but are still co-parenting uh, and, and want to be legal, both be legal parents of the child, but they're not married, never were, never will be. Uh, so, uh, so those are also really important to do. But again, really, really critical in this particular political climate to, to be sure that you have done everything that you can do uh, to protect your child, not to just rely on that birth certificate, although you should be able to. <laughs> um, you should be able to rely on that birth certificate, but, but just to be uh, extra careful because we have seen these, these crazy cases uh, go, go haywire, and, and we imagine that as uh, more people are, again, emboldened by this, this new uh, uh, sort of environment where discrimination seems to be uh, not only permitted but but encouraged by this administration, uh, we could imagine a scenario where uh, you know the the a legal parent passes away, you know, say a biological mom passes away, uh, excuse me, non biological mom passes away, and some some jerk at Social Security Administration who says that they have sincerely held religious beliefs and doesn't want to recognize your union 
would uh, would would say, oh, well, I see you on the birth certificate, but I don't see an adoption, so I don't see how you're a legal parent, or you know, some nonsense like that. So, just good idea to have that uh, uh, squared away. Uh, similarly, in this climate, very important to have your estate planning uh, squared away. Make sure that you know you, you don't you don't just rely on that marriage if you're somewhere where they're where they're giving you hassle, you know, but you also have your health care surrogate, your living will, uh, your power of attorney for minor child. Just just a good idea, again, to, to make sure that that's uh, squared away in the event that you land up in front of somebody who's, uh, who, who, who does not embrace our family. Tatiana, if I could just talk a little bit about that estate planning piece. Because oh, of course. I really, if, if the listeners get nothing out of this, which is doubtful, <laughs> what I want every listener to hear is that you should have your estate planning ducks in a row yeah. because there are so many things to take into account that you don't you do not want to leave up to the state or the courts to determine and uh, among those things that a, an attorney will make sure are properly handled are beneficiary designations that that trumps everything pardon the pun um Make you know if you started working in 1983 for the Miami Beach City Hall and you named your sister as your beneficiary because you were single and never changed anything. If you slip on a banana peel, your sister is the beneficiary. So um, the second thing is you want really to take into account who is going to be responsible for minor children, and again that estate planning process will help you to determine that. Um, if not, it will be left up to the courts to decide. And, uh, you know, we, we always um, suggested in in my adoption of our uh, two kids, we're not married, that really what the state's interest was is that they have two legal parents to financially be responsible for the kids. But we also don't want somebody to step in and intervene with what our intentions were, were one of us to pass away. Um, the other thing is think about what kind of financial requirements are going to be required to take care of those children and who you want to be responsible for that, it, it, it actually might not be the surviving spouse because maybe, you know, maybe there are some of those other complexities that Liz alluded to, you know, other people or philanthropy, things like that, that you want to account for. Or it might just be that the surviving spouse isn't interested in managing a trust for kids. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. You don't want your kids to be the beneficiary of money because while they might be lovely now when they're 18 or 19 or 21, they may be less lovely. They tend to become lovely again later. <laughs> Usually anywhere between 25 and 35 parents decide that their kids can have money again. So, um, so you want to take that into account as well because – you know, and that's something that you can only do effectively and strategically through comprehensive estate planning. Wow. Well, so much to consider with the information that, that I, you guys gave us and, and wonderful information. And I think that, like you both have said, it's it's really topics that, you know, are kind of heavy and lots of times people don't want to discuss them and they're not always fun. But you know, 100% important things to consider um, before getting married, before starting a family. And like you said, it's never too late to have these conversations, even if you're already coupled or already married. Um, so two two quick questions for you guys. Um, 
one came from one of our uh, college students, and they were asking that, you know, their same-sex parents were not married when they applied to college and applied for the FAFSA and other documents, and it was very complicated for them. How does marriage impact applying for FAFSA and other paperwork? Well, colleges have become very smart, and so, uh, and, and this is the case for many unmarried uh, children of unmarried couples, whether it's uh, same sex or other. Um, so the FAFSA now does a parent parent um, uh, application uh, that does take into account the unmarried partner. Some colleges you can sort of skirt around it, but again, in that planning to marry, if you know if the intention was that junior was going to qualify for a ton of financial aid because you had one unmarried, you know, the income uh, discrepancy was sufficient enough to, um, you know, to be able to do that. Uh, you may find um, that under the current scenario, th this is less of an option. So um, that's something you definitely want to take into account. I would also, you know, I would have a candid conversation with the, the respective uh, uh, colleges and universities that you're um, considering applying to to see what their what their guidelines have been. Um, you know, I, I'm old enough to have gone to school in the 80s where the FAFSA was everything, right? And the information was just taken off that and decisions and determinations were made. Um, but these days it's much more comprehensive than that. There's typically supplemental financial uh, data that has to be submitted alongside once you're accepted once you accept uh, that you're going to attend that college. Wonderful, Liz. Did you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, Darla captured it perfectly. Uh, th that it, it had been, you know, that FAFSA was uh, they weren't they weren't as as, as hip. To you know, alternative kind of family structures of, of all kinds. They've they've now uh, kind of squared away this newer parent parent um, kind of schematic. So it's harder to harder to uh, skirt around those issues. Um, but uh, but definitely, it, there lots of things depend school by school. So it is a good idea to to reach out and and you know try to kind of customize your application so you get the most financial aid and support possible. And for those of you who are interested, we're going to have a parent cafe on this subject at Families in the Midwest in uh, at the end of April. So you should go to the Family Equality Council website and and join us in Madison because it's going to be it'll be fun. I guarantee that, hmm. and we'll cover a lot of these issues of you plan for retirement or college, and you know what does that college equation look like for the children of LGBT families. Right. Right. Well, thank you for the plug. <laughs> and uh, one last question for you, for you guys: uh, marriage and buying a house. Is there a difference for when it comes to filing taxes, depending on the order that you do these? Like, if you get married first, then buy the house, or buy the house and then get married. So, for, from a taxes perspective, I'm not sure that there's a difference. Um, there, there are, uh, there's certainly a kind of a, a better way to own a home uh, in, in most states, uh, which is that if you own it as a married couple, tenants by the entirety, uh, it gives you enhanced creditor protection so that a, 
creditor would have to be a creditor of both of yours to be able to go after the home versus just a creditor of one of yours, which is uh, which would be the case uh, if you own the home with rights of survivorship, joint, joint tenants with rights of survivorship. So, so it's typically better in most states to own a property um, as a married couple. So if, if you buy it as a married couple, have it titled that way. If you had it uh, before, uh, and I cover this in Before I Do, if you have a, a property uh, and then you marry, you can get it retitled often, uh, uh, and, and that's a, a wise thing to do. But in terms of your, your specific question about if there are income tax benefits one way or the other to buying it before, after I, I, that, that I don't, I don't, there are not any consequences specifically that I'm aware of. I don't know if you are, Darla. Well, again, take it up with your tax planner, but I'll give a, yeah. a little bit of guidance. Um, if you're unmarried, you do have the option of one or the other of you taking the, the mortgage interest deduction. Uh, so that might be something that you're giving up going forward as a married couple. So, you know, those are things to take into account. And, of course, um, you know, depending on how that property might have been acquired pre-marriage, again, that might be a role for part of the discussion with a prenuptial or postnuptial agreement of, you know, where sort of, where did the house come from? How did down payments come to happen and that sort of thing? So, um, so I would take those things into account as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for you both, for your time um, and your knowledge and experience. Like I said, uh, you've definitely give us, given us a lot to think about um, on these, you know, topics and, uh, and thank you so much. Um, for our audience, thank you again for joining us. Until next time, remember that love, justice, family, and equality is what brings our families together. Sweet. Thank you. Thank you.